Happy to have you here with us. Um, let us pray. Lord God, <coughs> Heavenly Father, not only are you our Father, but you are our King. You are the King of Kings. You are Creator, the one who made this world, the one who made us, made us for your purposes, for your plan. We give you honor and praise this morning. We lift your name above all other names. And we remember those things that we may have tried to put above you. And we ask you now to just topple them from the thrones that we create in our heart. And have us turn our eyes to you, to your throne, where you reign from everlasting to everlasting. You have no beginning, you have no end. And we hope one day to be with you, where we will worship you and praise you forever and ever. And the thought of that, Lord, is just awesome to me because I can't imagine what a world without end would be but we look forward to sharing that world without end with you and being able to praise you and honor you forever and ever to have nothing come between us and you and Lord, so much in the past week has come between us and you. So many thoughts we have had that have not been from you, which have not glorified you, which have not honored you. Our eyes have gazed upon things that they should not because they are not from your holiness and your greatness. Our lips have uttered words that should never have come from them because those words are not from you and those words are not of you. And we have done things which have made us run into corners and hide from you. But we know that there is no hiding from you because you see everything. Even those things we do in the darkest hours where we think no one is seeing, you see. And you call us out on those things, Lord. Your Holy Spirit convicts us that those things are not right. They are not good. They are not pure. And so, Lord, for all those thoughts we had, all those words we said, all those looks we took, all those things which we did which were not of you. We come before your throne of mercy and ask for your forgiveness. 
we are so thankful, Lord, because we know that when we come before you with truly penitent hearts, you will forgive us. And you will set us right with you. Lord, we give you thanks for another day. We give you thanks for this wonderful weather. We give you thanks that the air is on in this place and that we can worship you in comfort. And help us to remember there are many throughout this world who do not worship you in comfort. They worship you in fear that at any moment a door will be crashed down and angry men will storm in and take them away, that their places of worship will be burnt down, that your word will be trampled on. And we thank you that we can worship you today in comfort, in safety, without fear. We thank you for your great provision, Lord. Those tables at the back are just a small sample of what you give us every day. You give us everything we need. And sometimes we are not grateful, Lord, because we always want more and more and more. Never realizing that your provision is sufficient for us. So we thank you for your provision, Lord. We thank you for your word which will be revealed to us again today. We thank you that your word convicts us, that your word guides us, that your word is the way to you, Lord. We thank you for the sacrifice you made, Lord, because I know that not many of us would want to their children in harm's way, let alone give our children up to be killed for the sake of other people. But you, Lord, you put your son on a cross. You allowed your son to go to a cross and die an awesomely cruel death for us, for our sins. And we can never thank you enough for that, Lord. We thank you for one another and the comfort and the strength and the support we provide to one another. We thank you for our pastor, for his heart, for his clear explanation of your word, for the way in which he guides us into truth. Lord, we just pray for a special revelation of yourself to us today. We pray that as we consider the life and legacy of a great man of God, that we will be moved to follow him and to go out and make disciples on your behalf, Lord. We pray for those in our church who are struggling with illness, with sickness, and we just pray for your healing touch on their lives, Lord. You are the source of all healing. You give wisdom to doctors. You provide nurses with the compassion and the care that they need to show to their patients. 
So for those of our brethren who are suffering, we just pray for your healing touch. We pray for wisdom for the doctors who will treat them. We pray for extra care and compassion for those who will care for them and look after them. Lord, we lift up our youth to you, Lord, and we just pray for your continued direction and guidance in their life. We pray for our pastor and his family, that you'll continue to bless them, Lord, that you will keep them safe from all harm and danger. Lord, we love you. Sometimes we forget to let you know how much we love you. But we do, Lord. And we are truly sorry for the ways in which we have offended you. We ask you to be with us here now during this time of worship. Make us attentive to your words. Let them touch our hearts and move us to action. In your son's great name we pray. Amen. Good morning, church. Never mind. If you need a Bible, would you please raise your hand? If you need a Bible, and please turn in those Bibles. Uh, you can mark a quick place in 1 Kings. Uh, we'll put that slide up in a moment. 1 Kings, you can mark a place. We're also going to be in 1 Timothy. There we go. Uh, 1 Timothy, John 21, and Acts 6. And again, we're going to read the entire book of Leviticus backwards today. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, we're not. Um, 1 Timothy. It's chapter 1. Uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Were you all as blessed as I was by the message last week? It's great to have a guest speaker come in here and talk about the holiness of God and the throne of heaven and, uh, and then bring us right back to the manger. That was an amazing time that we had. And today we, uh, we continue on our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through Timothy. And we read in chapter 3, verse 1, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith 
which is in Christ Jesus. And Father in heaven, as we look at this passage today, we just pray. As we look at your criteria in the church for leadership, Lord, don't we know that the leadership is established to set the tone and the example, Father, for all of us who are, in essence, all called to be ministers of your word. We wear the title Christian. And what do people see when they look at us? Father, would you please speak mightily through your word? And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible tells us, and I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I am going to read there. It's one of our reference passages for today in 1 Kings. The Bible tells us of a man named Solomon. A young man named Solomon who at this point in his life, he's believed to be in his 20s, and he's given an amazing, awesome challenge to take over the kingdom of Israel that had been established by God through his father David. What an amazing task. This young man is going to be leading millions. And he's going to be trying to fill the shoes of a man that was considered to be a man after God's own heart, King David. Perhaps no greater king had existed to that point. And now, Solomon, you have to fill his shoes. You're in your 20s, and you're looking at this absolutely impossible, daunting task to take over your father's position as king. And so one night God appears to Solomon and he says to him, he appears to him in a dream, God said, 1 Kings 3 verse 5, and again, you don't have to turn there, but I'm here. God says to Solomon, ask, what shall I give you? Solomon asks, and whatever it is, I'll give it to you. Verse 6 says, listen to Solomon's response in his 20s, and I want a challenge to see if this is how you would have responded. You have shown great mercy, Solomon said, to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on the throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. And this speech, verse 10 says, pleased God that Solomon had asked this thing and God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I've given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall there be again. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings of all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Stop right there. Here's the thing. In his 20s, God asks, what shall I give you? Ask whatever you want and I'm going to give it to you. Solomon could have asked a lot of things and I ask you, what would you have asked for in your 20s? Ha! Huh. I am so glad God didn't come to me in my 20s. 
and say, John, okay, what do you want? Okay, Lord, here we go. I'd like a, a new car, maybe, a big screen TV, a house on the beach. I was not making, and you probably can't relate to this, but I wasn't making great decisions in my 20s. I wasn't making power decisions in relationships. I wasn't making good decisions when it came to finances or career or anything else for that matter. Matter of fact, my life was a train wreck. People were looking at me, I'm sure, kind of like, what's that kid's name? Sean White, he does that uh, half pipe with the snowboard or what do they call that event? Whatever it is they call that event, that's what he does. And as he, as he is doing this, and it's like he, he goes down and he, he comes off the pipe and people are looking and he goes up so high and you look and you're like, oh boy, is he going to come down? Is he going to make it? That was my life in my 20s. My 20s, again, not making good decisions, living in New York City. There was a moment when one night coming home from work at Carmine's, a man had approached me and he had this bag and he looked like he was nervous and he looked like he was on the run. And he said, my man, come here, come here. I said, what's going on? He said, I've got in here a brand new Panasonic camcorder. He goes, I just stole it and the police are after me. Now, I wasn't walking with Jesus at the time. So he said, I've got this camcorder, and it's worth, and I knew it to be worth hundreds of dollars. Hundreds of dollars this thing was worth. And I said, but there's no way. I said, he's desperate. Huh. I'm going to take advantage of this. I told him, I've got $80 on me. Oh, no, man, no way, no way. But the police are coming. I said, I've got 80 and that's all I'm going. I was being very shrewd. 80 bucks, that's all. And uh, so he... Uh, he finally relented. I wore him down with my bargaining prowess. And he said, I'll take 80 for it. I turn around. Now, I actually had 100 on me. Oh, I was so shrewd. I had 100. So I pull out the 20s, and then I turn around, and I give him the 80 bucks. And, uh, and then I go over to celebrate. I get a Ben & Jerry's because I lived under a Ben & Jerry's in New York. And so I go upstairs into my apartment, and as I am taking the box out, I hear liquid. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe it's like a gel battery or something like that. And so I take it, and I'm kind of shaking it. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of odd. And so then I opened up the brand-new Panasonic box. Mind you, there was a receipt in there. This guy was thorough. All right, I, I opened it up, and here I have newspaper packing. And I'm like, Panasonic usually uses something like bubble wrap. They usually don't use newspapers, but maybe Panasonic is struggling financially. So I'm still being very optimistic about my purchase. And then what I do is I take the, the newspaper out, and then I see a Gatorade bottle. <laughs> and now I'm thinking even more optimistically, okay, maybe Panasonic is giving away Gatorade with every new camcorder. But that wasn't the case either because the Gatorade bottle was full of water, and there was nothing in that box but a Gatorade bottle full of water that I had just paid $80 for. I was not making good decisions in my 20s. Brilliant. All right, brilliant. Yes, I was not making good decisions in my 20s. Solomon, however, what does he ask for? He says, listen, God, there's a task out there, and I can't lead these people. I don't know what I'm doing. He says, I'm a baby. I don't know how to do this. And let me tell you, if you have things in your life that you're looking at right now and you say, you know what, I have no idea what to do about this, 
One of the things that God loves is when his children ask for wisdom. He loves that. James 1, 5, 6 promises us this, and this might be a verse that you write down if you're somebody in this room that's looking for wisdom right now so you can pray this promise back to God. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let, it, let him go to God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And the promise is, is that it will be given you. You will be told what to do. And what Solomon does, he asks for wisdom to lead the kingdom of Israel. We start there to go back to our primary passage in 1 Timothy where Paul is imparting wisdom to Timothy as to how to lead the church of Jesus Christ. What a more daunting task. Even a greater task than Solomon had to lead the children of Israel. Well, Timothy has this amazing task in front of him of pastoring a church, overseeing a church. And so what does God do? He puts Paul in his life to write this letter to say, listen, first of all, what we saw in the book so far is that you need to pray. If you're going to lead, you need to pray. And so that's the first thing he, he talks to Timothy about. He encourages him to fight the good fight in this book. He says, pray for all men, pray for leaders, understand the right roles in the church. And so what we have today is what we call lessons in leadership. Lessons in leadership, because it's life and leadership lessons that we see. Why? Why do we need them? Why is this important? Because the church needs leaders to step up. Because the world needs leaders to step up. And here you are as Christians, and God is saying, well, listen, I've established the leadership in the church, and today you're going to look at criteria and qualification for these leaders and it's important that these leaders live this out so they can set the example so that it can apply to all of our lives because this world is in lack of leadership. Our kids don't have leadership in the homes, and it's damaging. Last year I found on YouTube silliness. No, let's just call it stupidity. A young man bathing in hot sauce. He fills his entire bathtub with 500 bottles of hot sauce so that he could film it, put it on YouTube, and the young brothers got second-degree burns because of what he did. This is on YouTube for our kids to see. This is on YouTube for our kids to see. Now they have something out there now where kids are putting their arms on a stove to see how long they could do it, and it's called the burn yourself challenge or something like that. It's silliness. But here's the problem. There's increasing silliness, and there's an increasing lack of leadership, and that is not a good combo. That's why we're seeing society tailspin right now. And so these lessons today, what we're calling this lesson is life leadership lessons. Life leadership lessons is what we're going to look at today. And as we're looking at the criteria for the bishop and the elder in the church, I think what you'll see is as we study this, that these lessons apply across the board for every one of us to learn from through our struggles because society is in need of people that say, hey, listen, I'm a Christian, and this is what it means by being able to look at our lives and see consistency with the faith that we proclaim. And so we take a look today, 1 Timothy 3, this is our primary passage today, and Paul writes to Timothy first saying, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of bishop, he desires a good work. First of all, he says it's a faithful saying. 
Paul's saying, listen, this you can take to the bank, what I'm about to give you. All right, if you're confused in your life and there's chaos, we can always say when we open up this book that these are faithful sayings that can help take the chaos and put, the, put us back into order. Because as the psalmist said, God, your word in entirety is truth and all of your righteous judgments endure forever. In other words, what this book puts forth, they're not temporary fixes for our struggles. They are permanent solutions, make no mistake. First thing he says here in chapter 3 is if a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. That word for bishop in the original language, well, basic, basically it's, it's, it's a word that means overseer. Somebody that's looking over the church. And we don't use the term bishop anymore in the Protestant church as much as we use the words elders or pastors. And so it's the same word here, elder or pastor. If a man desires to do this, He desires a good work. But how do you desire to do it? Why do you desire to do it? Why do we desire to do any good thing? Have you ever looked at a position and you said, you know what, I'd like to do that? Position of work and you said, you know what, I I, I think that I would be good in this role. I I think that I would do well here. I think that I would flourish here. But when it comes to the church of Jesus, do you know that sometimes there are people that say, well, you know what, I tried... I, I, I tried working here, I tried working there, and I tried doing this, and I tried doing that, and nothing else worked, so I guess I'll be pastor. That is so not a good reason to do this. It says here that if a man desires a good work, where does our desire come from to do this good work? Our desire to do this good work comes from delighting ourselves in the Lord. That's where it comes from. And that's life leadership lesson number one. And this doesn't just apply to elders and deacons in the church. It applies to everybody that walks through the door of that church that calls themselves Christian, that the right desires in our heart start with a verse, Psalm 37, 4, that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So how do you know if the desire that you have to do whatever it is you're doing in life or in leadership, how do you know that that's from God? Well, I would ask you one question. How's your relationship with God? Are you delighting yourself in Him? Are you worshiping Him? How did I become a pastor? Well, I was going to be a doctor. I was going to be Dr. John. I'd seen ER, and it looked pretty cool. So so that was why that desire was put there. I'd seen something like that, and then when I got down here, well, my old church pastor called me up. I started working with youth. And we started pouring into them. And I started learning again. And one night after we were struggling with the youth, I wrote a frustration email to a pastor of a church of 20,000 down in Fort Lauderdale. And I said, I don't know what we're doing here. We're struggling. We're trying to minister to these kids. But it seems like uh, like there's a lot that's working against us. And this pastor of the church of 20,000, he sends me an email back saying, hey, I'd love to hang out with you one night after service. One night my wife and I are sitting with him one Saturday night after service, and I'll never forget this conversation. I will never in my life forget this conversation the way this played out. Because about three-quarters of the way through the conversation, he said, have you ever thought about being a pastor? He said, you seem to have a love for God's Word and a love for God's people. And boy, I tell you, that was it. For me, that was it. Why? We were delighting ourselves in the Lord. And as we were delighting ourselves in Him, what happened is one day 
it was like something just got set on fire. And that's what God does. That's why it's like when we give the announcements at the church, it shouldn't be a time where, oh, here, and now, you know, the youth group used to sing at the church that we were at, announcements, 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 terrible way to die, terrible way to die, terrible way to be bored to death, a terrible way to die. They used to sing that when we do the announcements at the church. But here's the thing. The announcements are the opportunity. What, they're serving the homeless? They're going to serve the homeless? They're going to work with special needs? I think that that might be something that God might be calling me to. Those are the opportunities. The church needs prayer. Maybe we'll start up a prayer group. Maybe we'll start up a community group. That's the opportunities that during that time, you're seeing some of the things that that God has placed on our hearts, and now you say, I want to get involved in that. I need to. They need help in the back with the kids? Yeah. I could see myself doing that. But that only comes when we have delighted ourselves in the Lord. That's where that springs from. See, Paul is writing Timothy, and he wants to make sure, listen, if you're going to appoint people, you want to make sure that these are people who have, who have been inspired by my word, that have been inspired by relationship with me. And when you do that, what happens is this, is that a man or a woman finds their calling. Let me ask you, have you found your calling yet? I'm not asking if you found the right job. Because you can be working a job and still have a a different calling. What's the difference between the job and the calling? Somebody said it like this. The difference between a job and a calling is the difference between having to do something and getting to do something. It's the difference between earning a paycheck and making an impact. That's the difference between the job and the calling. And so many of you can be working these jobs right now, and you could say, I don't know what I'm doing here, but God's calling you to tell people about Jesus. That's your calling. To evangelize, to make disciples, to pray for someone. That's your calling. Now, sometimes the job and the calling line up in a way that is so beautiful that you take a look and you say, wow. God, you really know what you're doing. And he says, yeah, I know. I always had, and I wish you would have trusted me sooner with what you're doing, right? You have to understand, it's a life leadership lesson, the relationship between delight and desire. Because when you finally get to a point where you're delighting yourself in God, things change. Because right now, some of you in this room might feel like, you know what? Every single day I'm pushing. Every day I'm pushing just to get by, just to get through, just to make it through this life. And what happens when somebody delights themselves in the Lord Here's what happens. Here's the change. Now, all of a sudden, it's almost like a tractor beam. You're being pulled towards something. You have energy you never thought that you would have. You have passions that you never thought. You have talents that, and opportunities that you never dreamt of because God is pulling you towards something, and you're not having to push anymore. That's the relationship between delight and desire. My wife has a calling to what she does in nursing. She's the presence of Jesus in the pediatric emergency room at West Boca Medical Center. She's the presence of Jesus there. I know this because when I call her workplace, I could never do what she does. I could never do what she does. I'll call there. Hello, is Tiffany there? And all I hear in the background are children screaming bloody murder. They're yelling and they're screaming. And she gets on the phone and she's like, hey, how are you, love? I'm like, wow, that's a calling. When I worked for hospice, had the opportunity to sit with people that were taking their last breaths, and I never really thought about it. Somebody would come up to me, and they'd say, well, you know what? That's got to be a calling, what you're doing. 
Have you found your calling? And if not, don't fret because you can find your calling if you resolve to delight in yourself in the Lord. That's how somebody finds their calling. So if you haven't found your calling yet, don't sit here and say, I need to find my calling, need to find my calling, need to find my calling. No, instead what you do is this, delight yourself in him. Celebrate him. That calling will come upon you just as, as sure, as sure as this God makes the sun come up every morning. There were a lot of guys in seminary that were there because their family wanted them to go to seminary. There are a lot of guys there that just said, hey, we couldn't find anything else to do. And can I tell you this? Is that if it's not a calling and if that delight has not been put there by the Lord, whether it be as being a pastor, a deacon, a worship leader, anything in the ministry of Jesus Christ, it won't last if it's not put there by God. It will not last. And if it is put there by God, then all you have to do is get out of the way and rely on Him for the strength. So life leadership number one is that we want to understand the relationship between delight and desire. In that same verse in chapter 3, it says this. It says, if a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. The second point is this. second life leadership lesson is this, is that all meaningful endeavors entail, you ready for it? Work. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, he who desires the position of bishop, he desires a good vacation. He desires a good... No, he desires work because this is work. I was very naive when I first started. I thought that, hey, being a pastor was a matter of just, hey, I get to study God's word, encourage people, and blah, blah, bye. No. No. No, can I say that that's not it? Not at all. It's work. I thought it was simple as, okay, I'll go pray for somebody that's sick and struggling. No, what happens is this, is that when you desire this work, and it's not just as a pastor or an elder, they set the example for all of the church because everybody here is a minister and everybody here has the responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside hurting people. That's the work. Yes, there's practical work. And don't forget that. Because if you're not willing to do the practical, then don't bother to do the personal. The practical work, these are the guys that come around, they set up the church, they run the slides in the back, they pick up the bread that's here, and you just and we come in and we just sit there and we enjoy a lot of this stuff. But there are people that are doing work in the backgrounds that, that you never see. People that are picking up brooms, our youth group making coffee. I'm so proud of these guys. As much as I get on them, I'm so proud of them. Because here's what happens. Every Sunday morning at 8.30, these guys are here faithfully. It's partially because I pick them up. But they're here faithfully every morning at Sunday at 8.30. Folks, listen. They set these chairs up. They put the cushions out. They put the curtains up. But it's work. And there's that practical side of work that if you see something that needs to be done, say, hey, what can I do to help out? That's part of the heart of a servant that says, listen, if we get to do anything in the house of God, it's a blessing. Anything. If you get to pick up, if you get to hand someone a cup of coffee in the morning, say, would you like cream with that? That's a blessing. Anything we get to do in the house of God. But yes, my friends, it's work. And there's that practical work. But then there's also that personal and painful work that comes with being a child of God. It's work. All meaningful endeavors entail work. It's personal and painful. 
I can't imagine as we take a look at the first responders that walked into Parkland a couple of weeks ago, I cannot imagine what these men saw. But what's more, I can't imagine ever having to do something like that without Jesus Christ. As a Christian, you know this, and perhaps you've even said it, I don't know how people deal with the level of pain that's out in this world without Jesus. I don't know how they do it. I don't, I don't get it. When I volunteered with kids at Sloan Kettering that had cancer, I was young. And truth be told, I was probably doing it for the wrong reasons. I was doing it to make myself feel better. But somebody came along and they said, hey, you know what? When you have your own children, when you have your own children, you won't be able to do this. And right now, quite honestly, many years later, almost 20 years later, sometimes when a St. Jude's commercial comes on, I look at my own kids and I just break down sometimes. And the thing that I always think is, I don't know how people can go through this without Jesus. Ministry is work because you're dealing with the carnage and the devastation and the destruction of this world and the ugliness of this world. Anybody that wears the title of Christian has a responsibility not to say, well, somebody else will take care of it. If you see it, see a need, meet a need. Just like your bosses at work don't like it when you say, well, that's not my job. Here, take out the garbage. That's not my job. In the church, it's our job to come alongside people, and that's why he says, listen, if you desire it, it's a good work. It's a good work. It's a good work. Let me ask you something. Are you working in ministry right now? Because every single one of you here Every single one here has the call to do this. It is a meaningful work. And when you find that work, there will be nothing more meaningful in your life once you find that. For time's sake, I'm not going to have you turn there, but it's John 21. After Peter has blown it. It starts in verse 15. After Peter has absolutely blown it. And he said, Lord Jesus, he goes, if everybody else denies you, it won't be me. I'll be the one that's there with you to the end. If everybody else forsakes you, if everybody else abandons you, not me. And what does Peter do? When he's pressed by a servant girl, he denies even knowing Jesus three times. Not once, twice, three times. Jesus comes back at the, after the resurrection in John 21. And he asks him, three times, do you love me? Because if you love me, here's what you're going to do, Peter. You're going to feed my sheep. You're going to tend my lambs. You're going to take care of business if you love me. The greatest motivation for ministry ever is the fact that you love God. The fact that you realize he sent his son to die on a cross for you. That is the greatest motivation for anything, and that empowers any work that we do. So the second life lesson that we look at is that all meaningful endeavors in this life entail work. Let's read on in our passage. It's 1 Timothy 3, again. We're going to skip around a little bit right now for the next point. It says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of bishop, he desires a good work. And then it gives some of the criteria for bishop. In verse 8, it says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, nor greedy uh, for money, uh, holding the mystery of faith with pure conscience. You have two roles here that are, 
that are, um, that are put forth in this passage, that of the bishop, that's the overseer, the elder, the pastor, and then you have the role of deacon. And deacon simply means servant, and they serve under the elders of the church. And they're the worker bees. And while these roles are different, can I please explain to you that they're equal? They're equal, and this is the third point. Life lesson number three is that all roles in this life are equal in importance, but different in performance. They're equal in importance, but different in performance. So you're sitting in the church, you don't necessarily have a title, you are still so very important. Everybody in this church is important. The difference is this, is that some have embraced their calling, some are serving, and some are sitting back saying, where do I fit in in this place? Where do I fit in? But understand this, whether there's an official title or not, the deacon is just as important as the elder. And all of us are ministers. I'll put it to you like this. While we say that roles are equal in importance but different in performance, I'll give you the difference between a man and a woman, my wife and myself. All right, I see my wife out there, and she is carrying a heavy box or trying to. She can't lift it. I see it from back here. I go out there and I lift it up for her. Okay? Let me ask you something. Am I being sexist or am I being chivalrous when I do that? Sexist, that's right. No, <laughs> am I being sexist or am I being chivalrous? Okay? Why? Because we're created differently. She and I are designed differently. She has different strengths than I have. She has different weaknesses than I have. She can do things that I can't, and I can do things that she can't. Giving birth. She can do it, and I cannot. Is she being sexist or chivalrous? (laughs) Exactly. That's the point, gang. It's like they're equal in importance, yet different in performance because we're designed differently. You might be called differently. This person is called to be an elder. This person is called to be a deacon. This person is called to be a worship leader. But my wife is in the back right now teaching the kids. Is that less important than my role out here teaching you all? I don't think so. In the book of Galatians, what happens is that the cross puts us all on level playing field of importance, that there's neither master nor slave, nor Greek, nor Jew, nor male, nor female. That's what the book of Galatians says. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ did. And so all roles are equal in importance, but they are different in performance. Life lesson number four. As we're looking at some of these qualities, the first thing that sticks out in both sections is that the overseer should be blameless. The deacon should be blameless the minister of God, we should strive to be blameless. That means somebody should be able to take a look at our life and say what they claim to believe matches up with with the fact that they say that they're Christians. Their actions and their words match up. And this brings us to life lesson number four. If you desire to look over and lead out, you must be prepared to be looked at. If you desire to look over as an overseer, if you desire to lead out as a deacon or in any part of ministry or in any part of the church, then you have to be willing to be looked at. And that's why this criteria, this character criteria is given of these men. Because they were willing to be looked at. They were willing to have their lives out there to be examined. So in other words, every phone call that you're on is being measured for quality assurance. Right? 
You're always being looked at. Now, have you ever had one of those calls with you? This phone call will be monitored for quality assurance. Do you really think that every single phone call is monitored? No. No. So why do they say that the phone calls are being monitored for quality insurance? Well, because if you disagree with something that they say, they have evidence that will, can and will be used against you by this phone call. All right? But it's all being monitored for quality assurance. Your life is being looked at as if you were in a fishbowl. All right, and people are just walking by, and you say, well, I don't want that level of accountability. I don't want people to look at my life like that. There's some conversations I really don't want God to be a part of. Have you ever had that? Have you ever said, you know what, this person wronged me. I'm about to have a conversation with them, and, and if I could just, like, shut God out of that, I would really love to do that because I want to take care of business, and I want to do it my way. All right, if you've ever done that, understand this is that as christians we don't have that's a luxury as a man or woman of god we don't have that luxury sometimes to tell people how we really feel that's a luxury that we don't get why because we're meant to have these lives where people can look at us and they can see jesus billy graham got himself in a little bit of trouble back in the 70s on a phone call with richard nixon and this is really the only blemish on the man's record that most people can see and that is, he made some anti-Semitic comments. And he learned a lesson. Uh, and and you've got to love his character because after he was called out on it, he basically almost went on his hands and knees to the Jewish leaders asking for forgiveness. Do you realize that everything that we're doing in the dark will be revealed in the light? Everything. So if you want to look over, if God has given you anything to look over, this could be your family. This could be youth. This could be the children in the church, whatever it is. That, uh, this could be your position in the workplace. If God has given you any responsibility where you are whatsoever and you wear the title Christian, this doesn't just apply to elders and deacons. This is across the board that we're always being watched. It's like a, the king of pop used to, well, I don't know if he said this, I always feel like somebody's watching me. Somebody is. Somebody is. And so that's life lesson number four. Billy Graham is also known for his stance on women. And his position as far as being with the opposite sex was that he would never be in a public place one-on-one alone, be it a restaurant, even on an elevator, not one-on-one. Why? So that when people looked at his life, when people looked at his life, they couldn't even have a shade of anything that would be considered inappropriate. I'm a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor, and I'm in a church with those, with many that are in recovery. It is for that reason that when I go out, I don't, you won't see me with a beer. One, I hate the taste of it. Is it a sin to drink beer? No. Is it a sin to have a glass of wine? No. But as an elder of the church, especially, it's important for me that if you go out and you say, well, Pastor John's doing it, I can do it. No. If our youth go out and they see me partaking in this, it's something that's an example that I don't want to set for them. It's an example that I don't want to set. Why? Because I know that for some reason God called me to Delray Beach, which is the recovery capital of the world. So it makes sense to me in my thinking, well, not to partake in something like that. We're always being looked at, gang. Last point, and this is life lesson number five. And again, we're not going to go through an exhaustive, we're not going to go through an exhaustive um, 
of the, an exhaustive list of all the qualities that are listed. As for a bishop, it says they must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And that one's easy. You don't want somebody in leadership that's a husband of more than one wife. That's called David Koresh. Okay? You do not want that. And I'll give you another point to show that you don't want that. I want wives, take a very good look at your husbands if, if you're with them today. Okay? Take a good look at your husband, Donna. You can do that. Take a good look at your husband. All right? Let me ask you. Do you want, do you want two of them? No. <laughs> you want two of them. And husbands, look at your wife. No, we won't even do that. But I'll tell you this, is that I have a wife and two children. My kids are like mini-me's. So it's like my wife already has three of me. She doesn't need more. So that's one of the reasons that as we look at the qualities, these qualities, everything that we see, and you'll understand them rightly when you understand that the reason that we're to embody these qualities is because we're to exemplify Jesus Christ. This is the fifth and final life lesson. It says, let the qualities they see reflect the character of Jesus. Jesus loved his bride as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And they should see that in our lives. Okay? So it says that the elder should be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable. And all that's being laid out through the rest of these passages are, there are things that you would take a look at and you could say, I see Jesus in that. I see Jesus in that. I see Jesus in that. And that should be all of our goals. The difference between the elder and the deacon, it says here that the elder, it said, it said that they should have the ability to teach. That's the main difference between them. But it also tells us that with these roles, that be very careful about who is made an elder of the church and is a deacon of the church and who's given responsibilities within the wall of the church. Why? Because if they're not ready for the responsibility thrust upon them, they can set somebody up for failure. They can set somebody up for failure. When we think of living out these qualities in this life. For the deacon, it says this. It says the deacon must be reverent, not double-tongued. Should any of us be double-tongued? No. Not given to much wine. Well, the deacon's told that they're not given to much wine. Not greedy for money. Holding the mystery of faith with pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve and as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all sayings. Let deacons be the husbands of one wives, ruling their children. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and a great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You can read over all of these qualities of the elder and the deacon, and you can basically say, you know what? It sums, it sums up to this, is that we're called to Christ-likeness, to Christ-like character. Through your tragedy, through your struggle, through your trial, we're called to Christ-like character. And if any man in my lifetime ever lived this out, it was a man named Billy Graham. Uh, D.L. Moody once said this. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. But Billy Graham led a great example of this. And um, of a life consecrated to God and somebody that God worked mightily through in my own life uh, my grandfather came to Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade in New York City in 1957. In 1985, almost 30 years later, I remember being a kid and I was supposed to go to my little little league game that night and instead I made a choice because Billy Graham was speaking uh, in February of 1985 
down in Fort Lauderdale, and I went there with my parents, and I will never forget it. I want you to just watch this video, and again, this video, we're not here to celebrate a person, but we're here to recognize what God did through a person and what God can do. You don't know what he can do through you.